The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Genesis, chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come before you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after, the, after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money, or any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought with your, bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her, call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will bless you, a son, by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety-nine years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and the men of his house, those born in the house, Born in the house, and those bought with the money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. Well, welcome to Sacred City. 
Um, if this is your first time uh, gathering with us, you're going to get quite the spectacle today. All right, I'm just going to let you know. We are going and have been going verse by verse through the book of Genesis. And today we're going to attempt to cover the entirety of chapter 17. So I'm just going to give you a heads up. The thrust of today's text is a lot of men getting their private parts snipped. So if you have younger kids in the service today, I'll leave it up to your discretion. You can take them downstairs if you want. We are going to be discussing some things of the sensitive nature. (laughs) All right. Let me pray as we get into it. Father, we honor you. We glorify you. We magnify you. We take it as no light thing to come and to gather from the four corners of our cities and sit under the instruction and the reading and the preaching of your word. We believe in the power of of the gospel. We believe that the gospel proclaimed saves people, that it changes hearts, that it renews and sanctifies and removes sinful desires and places in us godly desires that you do all these things through the preaching of God's word. And, and we want to take a humble posture today and sit under it, even when it's something kind of strange. And maybe we might misunderstand or might not understand or might not really get the majority of what we're talking about today. We ask that the spirit would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords and listen to through our ears today, that you would help us hear what you would have to say to Sacred City Church. You would help us hear what God has to say to us through his holy word today. It's an honor to be here, Father. We worship you. We glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, believe me, this is not something that I was sitting at home and getting really amped up about preaching. But again, as we preach through books of the Bible, we deal with everything that is in them because we believe that 2 Timothy 3.16, when it says all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God or the women of God, the people of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, my job is not to do the work of the ministry. If you've been around here very long, you should know that. My job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Everyday people doing everyday things with gospel intentionality. That's the work of the ministry. So, here we have today... We're going to be talking about an old man, Abram's private parts. All right? Not too excited about it, but that's my PG-13 warning. And now we're going to to go ahead and dig into God's Word. It's Genesis chapter 17. You can follow along with us. We have Bibles in the back. We also have um, Sacred City app, our Sacred City app um, that you can... There's a Bible app there, and it follows along with us. Or you can go to YouVersion, number one Bible app in the world. And... um, hit live events and and you can follow along with us right there as well. So here we are, 17, chapter 17, verse one. Let's jump into it. When Abram was 99 years old, okay? 99 years old. Chapter 17 picks up the story of Abram and Sarai and the promise that God gave gave to them to have a child who would bless the entire world. 
This is roughly, if you remember, 13 years after the events in chapter 16, what we talked about last week. This is another 13 years later. So roughly about 24 years later after God first showed up to Abram. Remember what happened last week, right? Sarai comes up with a great idea to give Abe, her servant, Hagar, to sleep with so she could become a surrogate mother. Common cultural practice, but things do not go well for her. And now that son, Ishmael, who was uh, promised last week, or that we saw how the fulfillment of man's ingenuity, man's invention, man trying to kind of take God's place. We saw what that produced last week. And now we have Ishmael, that son, 12 or 13 years old. Sarah is nine, Sarah is 90. Abe is 99. To add insult to injury, Sarai has been living with the consequences of her sin now for 13 years. If you remember from last week, Hagar, like Sarai, punished Hagar and abused her and, and, and just created an atmosphere that she couldn't stand. So Hagar took off and was going to run away from her problems, going to run away from her past and run away back to her old life. But Jesus goes and meets Hagar in the desert and says, go back to where you came from. Go back to that tough situation. Hagar obviously obeyed. And went back into that really difficult and drama-filled situation. Now it just, it amazes me how the gospel can empower someone and change their desires so quickly. She's bolting. I can't handle this. I'm being abused. This is too much for me. I'm going to go back to my old life. And when she meets Jesus, he changes her desires. He doesn't just slap her on the wrist and say, get, get back. And she begrudgingly puts her head down marches back to Abram. God, through the power of the gospel, changes her heart, changes her desires, changes, like Paul will say later, he puts the will inside of our hearts, to will and to want to obey God. She was running away from her problems, met Jesus, received his grace, and then headed right back into a really difficult and painful situation. Often that's what God does with us. Redeems us, saves us, gives us his grace, and sends us back as missionaries into really difficult situations. And only the gospel gives someone that kind of hope and power. Only the God of the gospel can change a person's heart like that. But as for Sarai, here we are. 13 years later, she's still barren. She's 90 years old, still no child to call her own. And for the past 13 years, she has lived with and watched Abram, her husband, and Hagar, her servant, raise Ishmael. Can you imagine this, ladies? A daily reminder of her sin and her distrust in God. Every day she watches Abram love a child that should be hers, but it's not hers. That had to be like salt in a wound. Not only is she barren, but she's living with her husband and her husband's other wife. More than likely by this time, Sarai and Abram would have been convinced 
that Ishmael was the son whom God had promised to bring redemption to the world through. So at this moment, Sarai thinks, I've been passed over. God has forgotten about me. The promise that God has showed up and given the covenant to Abram three separate times now, that promise is going to Ishmael. I thought I was going to be a part of it. I thought I was going to be included into it. But it looks like it's going to be Ishmael who receives the covenant and receives the promise. Sarai, as you can imagine, was most likely in the depths of despair. Her barrenness communicating loud and clearly her worthlessness as a woman and a wife unable to produce an heir for Abram. As she said in the last chapter, the Lord has prevented me from having children. No doubt she felt cursed by God. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like that? Cursed by God, not loved by your husband, not loved by those who are closest to you. On the outs, you feel condemned. You feel ashamed. You feel worthless. And it is into these circumstances and this kind of historical and literary context that God again speaks to Abram. It's been 13 years. It's been 13 more years, 24 years since the promise the first time. And what does God say? Let's look. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. I am God Almighty. Now, this is something that we might just skim over like it's not a big deal, but it is actually an important facet of this chapter, one that I wish I could spend a lot more time on. This chapter has several different themes. And as you study it, one of the things that you pick up is the importance of names. Moses, the author, first uses the Hebrew word Yahweh, Translated in all capital letters in our Bible, Lord. Anytime you see that, all caps, Lord, that's Yahweh. That's God's covenant name. That's God's, the specific name given to God as Israel's God. It's his, his, uh, the, like, this is our God. Not just God as in over all the earth and over all the world, but this is our covenant God. This is the God who's made, has a special relationship with the Hebrew people. So Moses first uses... Yahweh, in this text, the Lord, the covenant God, shows up to Abram. But then, Yahweh says that he is also El Shaddai. That's, in our text right here, it says the God, the God Almighty. I like to call El Shaddai, just because it sounds cool. El Shaddai is a tough word to translate. Um, Old Testament scholar Robert Alter says that it is most likely comes from a Semitic word meaning mountain. And fertility. In a sense, or in reality, God is saying, I am the all-sufficient one. He's speaking into a barren situation saying, trust me, I'm not barren. I'm all-sufficient. I can take a barren old lady and make them fertile again. Trust me, I'm almighty. I'm all-sufficient. Where will you place your faith? So the Lord, Yahweh, who calls himself El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, says to Abram, says this, Walk before me and be blameless that I may make a covenant. Now, for those of you who have been with us for a while, this should 
pop up some, you know, question marks. We should, we should go, whoa, 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 whoa. So that I should make a covenant. I'm going to ask you a question here. Sacred City Church, you've been with us a while. Has God already made a covenant with Abram? Yes, absolutely. Yes, he has. If you remember, God cut his covenant in chapter 15, and it was a unilateral covenant based upon the sheer grace of God. God promised in chapter 15 to fulfill both sides of the agreement and even swore on his very life to keep it. He said, let me be like these cut apart animals if I break this covenant, right? So what's going on here? Many people, when they are reading this text and they're studying the history of this word called covenant and they're studying, you know, covenants in the Bible and they're reading through this, you know, and this is like, you know, God keeps reiterating this and God keeps bringing this up. And is this a new covenant? Is this a, you know, you know, adding on to the old covenant? What's going on here? It's, it can get really confusing. Many people think that, that God is now making another covenant with Abram that has different stipulations. Like he said, ah, I'm going to cancel that old one. Let's do a different one. I don't see that. I believe the covenant has continuity with the covenant in chapters 12 and 15. It's continuous. It, it moves that God is just showing greater implications and greater details of the covenant. He's already stated, but what God has been doing is he's kind of been warming up Abram. He's kind of been dropping. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to bless you, multiply you. Okay. It's going to include some land. It's going to include some people and he's going to keep dripping this in and kind of keep brief, like kind of expanding the covenant. Each time. Every time the covenant has been reiterated, God has expanded the blessings included. And he's given a little bit more detail to Abram regarding the covenant. This time is no different. Hear me. This is still a covenant based on sheer grace and all that is required is Abram's faith in God. That's it. Just like we read in chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and they jump off in the New Testament and go off on that. This is how we get justification by faith alone, right? Okay, I know, guys, listen. For some of you, this is going to be a heavy sermon today. This is going to be heavy. We're going to have to just get our, our mental gears going. You're going to have to be okay with maybe not getting everything, going back and listening to it again. I might just give you stuff that puts a question mark on you. And the spirit of God, when he saves us, he makes us into learners. That means he makes us into people that want to know about him. So you might have to take some of the words I say today and go study them. Message me on the city, email me, talk to me after the service. I probably won't be able to answer all your questions right after the service, but you can email me and I will answer your questions. I love when people are challenged. They don't understand. They want to know the answers. Okay. I can't go into a ton of detail because this chapter is so full today. All right. But just me, please. What happens is we see this word right here, blameless. Oh, that's easy. Right. God appears to Abram. He says this, I'm God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. Let me just cut to the, cut to the chase here. We get tripped up by this word blameless. But since we have the advantage of living on this side of the cross and on this side of Jesus Christ, let me ask you, who is blameless? Right? Yeah. No one. No, not one. Except Jesus Christ. The God-man 
Jesus Christ. Now, Abram has been walking with this God for about 25 years, but has he been blameless? <laughs> has he been blameless? Right? Okay. Absolutely not. He, well, we don't even, I don't have time to go into all the craziness that Abram's done up until this point. But here is something that we need to see. Abram has been walking by faith in the blameless one. Abram has been walking by faith in the blameless one. Has he been blameless himself? Okay, but he's been walking by faith in the blameless one. And we find out in the New Testament, the miracle of the gospel is that we place our faith in the blameless one and we get counted as blameless. Unbelievable. God is reminding Abram here that this is a covenant of grace by faith. It's all grace. God will provide the blameless one, but Abram here, but Abram must still walk by faith in that blameless one. This is where it's going to get heavy. This is where we're going to have to kind of turn on our brains. I know a lot of us like to go to church and check out and just kind of, we, we think we can just turn on some kind of spiritual side of us, check out our brain. Not around here. That's not true biblical Christianity. We're talking about God. <laughs> It should take every fiber, every ounce, every brain cell we have. It should take every ounce of our will. It should take every ounce of emotion that could be stirred up in us. All that makes us into a human being. It takes all of that to respond to God. And we'll never fully understand him. Right? So let's... Man, I I don't want to... I'm sorry. I'm just going to keep going on. I don't want to demean you in any ways. I feel like I'm a kindergarten teacher. Put on your thinking hats. Here we go. All right, let's go. All right. God is a sense saying this to Abram. I have, a uni- I have unilaterally committed myself to you. And your faith in me will require your devotion. Abraham in chapter 15 was a passive recipient. Remember, he stood by and watched God do the covenant ceremony. But here, God is calling Abram to active Obedience. Everybody say active obedience. Okay. God is saying, yes, it is all grace through faith, but your faith will cause you to walk with me. It's all grace by faith, but your faith will produce a walking. It will produce a love. It will produce an obedience. Listen, if we really believe God and we trust him, we will obey him. If you love him, you will walk with him. In the New Testament, we know James jumps off this and says that faith without the subsequent works would be dead. I think it was Martin Luther said, we're saved by faith alone, in grace alone, right? But we're not saved by faith that remains alone. True faith works. True faith works produces obedience. Maybe not like that. Not saying it produces sinlessness. It produces a desire to obey God, a desire to please God, that I'm in this loving covenant relationship with him and I want to want him. I want to obey him. I want to please him. I want to walk with him. So God comes down and says, Abraham, here's the deal. It's going to take you walking with me. There's, I'm going to make the covenant. It's unilateral. I'm going to fulfill both sides of it. But you have to walk with me. 
See, but many of us, when we hear that, and I, I, this is how I used to hear it as well. When we hear it, we, we're like, oh, see, see, there it is. See, it's not just grace alone. It's not just faith alone. See, I do have to do something. I knew it. I knew I had to do something. It's not all grace. I have to work as well. Now, listen, I know this can be really confusing and hard to believe, but let me show you a few verses in the New Testament. I think we've got those back there, Adam. Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. This is what it says. May the God of peace sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept. What's the word? Blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Who's going to sanctify us and make us blameless? Who? Who will do it? Who is faithful? He will do it. He will do it. He does this work. Now listen, even though what happens when we place our faith in Christ, when God regenerates our hearts, gives us the faith to believe, we respond in faith in the work of the gospel, in the work of Christ on our behalf. We respond to that. And listen, this is what happens. God makes us new creatures in Christ. But now Paul, let's go to Colossians 1. Paul will tell believers, he says this, you, all of us, if you're believers, if you're in Christ, Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and what? Blameless. Blameless and above reproach before him. Uh-oh. If indeed you continue in the faith. Who will present us holy and blameless? Who will, pre- who will present us holy and blameless? Come on, we're going to respond today. We're going to have to do it. All right. Jesus will. He will. But listen, what is required of us? Faith. Faith, to continue in faith. Listen to this quote from John Piper. The holiness that we are to have at the day of Christ's coming is contingent on continuing in the faith. But this contingency does not contradict certainty. God is faithful. He will do it. But no believer should think that he will be ready to meet Christ if he does not continue in the faith. It's kind of hard to believe. It's kind of hard to get our mind around. Those who are truly saved, those that Christ has made into new creatures, he will fill you with faith. He will cause you to continue in the faith. He will keep you blameless. But there is human responsibility. Our job is faith and repentance. That's what our job is. That's what we do. We don't focus on being good. We don't focus on trying harder. We don't focus on morality per se. We focus on faith in the gospel, in Christ, and repentance. So God isn't changing the rules of the covenant here. He's just showing Abram the implications of that faith. True faith repents. True faith walks with God closely in an intimate relationship. Ooh, churchgoers get real nervous right now. It's not just coming to church and sitting under the teaching of God's word. 
means walking with God Almighty. True faith produces good works and a faithful walk with God because God, the author of that faith, is king at work. Oh, man. I'm going to say it again because that's good. True faith produces good works and a faithful walk with God because God, the author of that faith, is making it work. God gives me the faith to believe and and he is in charge of sustaining that faith in me. My job is to continue to trust him by walking in repentance and faith. Stick close to Jesus, that's it. So run into the, took Zoe and Javin to the, to the store the other day. We, yesterday we did a, pro, a little home project and they love doing that kind of stuff with dad. So I took them both in there. And I've got a bunch of stuff in my hands, carrying it out of carrying it out of the store, and you know, weather's getting a little nasty. Parking lots can be crazy. I looked at my kids and I just say, "Hey, hey, stick close to dad, right? Stick close to dad." That's what God's saying here to Abram. I'm going to bless you. I want you to see the beautiful expansiveness, the, all the promises of this covenant that I'm giving to you. Just stay close to daddy. Just stay close. Faith and repentance. So Sacred City Church, how do we walk blameless before God? By placing our faith in the blameless one, Jesus Christ, and walking with him the rest of our lives. That's it. Listen, that should just floor you. What amazing grace. And look how Abram, I want you to see how Abram responds here. Listen, stop, stop, stop. When we, when we sing, we kind of let everybody come in. We sing, usually sing a song about God and everybody kind of takes their seat. And then we do a call to worship. We usually quote a long psalm about the greatness and the, the majesty and the brilliance of our God. What this is, is that's God in his word calling his people to worship him. It's God calling his people to glorify him. And then what do we do? We are meant to respond to that in worship. So many people in the church today, they they come into a church and they try to work things up like they have to get God's attention. They have to get their praise on because God is snoring and hit the snooze alarm and we better wake him up for the 1030 service. This is bad theology. We're the sleepy ones. We're the ones who stayed out too late. We're the ones who are groggy from a long weekend. We're the ones who walk away from the covenant. We're the ones who forget God. God is eternally faithful to us. God is eternally calling us back to the covenant. So God does this to Abram. He's calling him back into covenant. And what's Abram do? Verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. Then Abram fell on his face. Abram responds in worship. God calls us and we respond to him. This is why we lift our hands. This is why we kneel before God. This is why we weep and sing and repent every week. God has called us into a relationship with him. 
And it is our job to respond to that calling. Where are your affections? When we're singing to God, when we hear the reading of God's word, when we hear the calling of scripture, when we profess our faith, where are your affections? Where are your desires? Where are your emotions? Are you moved? If not, I would ask God. I would seek God. I would repent to God. I would ask him for those affections. Because when we see rightly, when we see God rightly, we are undone. We are stripped bare before him. The proverbial dream that everybody has of telling, you know, public service announcement, some kind of message completely naked. They wake up panicked. That's kind of how we should feel before the throne of God, before the face of God, during worship. of Completely undone, completely bare. He sees the depths of our heart. He sees the wickedness of our desires and our choices and our thoughts. But at the same time, but at the same time, he gives us grace because of his son. There's this kind of proverb that says, never trust a guy to borrow who's not drinking. I get really nervous about people in church who aren't responding to God. I get really nervous about that. Now, I'm not trying to judge anybody by, hey, being introspective and repentant, that's responding to God. But checking Facebook, writing down my to-do list for the rest of the week, that makes me nervous. Because I believe the transcendent, all-powerful, almighty, all-sufficient God is in this place and he has called us to worship him. And if and we are made by the stuff that he put together when he brought and he breathed into it the breath of life and we're made in the image of God and we're meant to respond to the glory of God and worship that should move us more than that cute kitty photo on Facebook. That should move us. And if it doesn't, I think we've been seduced. I think we've been seduced by consumerism. We've been seduced by this, this pace of Amer- this American life that we live, that we can't ever sit down and think and meditate and dwell in the presence of God. We're constantly all over the place. And I refuse to use that to hook you. So we could have lights and we could have smoke and we could have 18 minute sermons and we could have real flashy stuff and little skits that get up on stage and, and appeal to that horrible brain that's been destroyed by 18, mission, 18 minute television shows with a commercial every six minutes because we have terrible attention spans. We could appeal to that. But instead, I'd rather go against it. I'd rather call you to something deeper, true humanity, something that God's made you for something deep that your soul can respond to. And if you're not getting it, repent. If you're not moved by it, repent. He's given you grace. Ask him for the desire. Ask him for the heart. Ask him for the affections. He's a gracious father who loves to give those gifts to his child, his children. Oh. <laughs> He is sovereign. (laughs) 
classic. So God has called us into a relationship with him. And we, it is our job to respond with faith and repentance and walking in obedience to this calling. And God said to him, oh man, this is going to be tough. And God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. All right, I'm not going to go through everything here because... God is reiterating the covenant. He's going to say the same thing he said in the other covenants, but he's going to expand it in a couple different ways. Number one, he's going to make a promise that I would love to get into, but I don't have time. He's going to make a promise to Abram's seed. He's going to make a promise to Abram's children. He says, I will be their God. They will be my people. There's some kind of promise given to children who are inside the covenant. And he also is going to expand this covenant to Sarah. And we'll, we'll see that in a minute. Right here, Moses, again, he's play, make a play, make, making a play on words. He uses Elohim for the word of God. So now we've got Yahweh, the covenant God. We've got El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. And now we have Elohim, the universal God, the God above all gods, the God over all. To continue with the theme of names in this chapter, Abram is about to go from Abram to... Abraham. Basically, his name meant exalted father. And now it's going to mean the father of many nations. I say it went, he goes from daddy to big daddy. But God says to Abram, that's my covenant. That's my promise to you. That's what I choose to commit myself to you. I will be your God and you will be my people. You will have a nation. You will have lands. You will have kings will come through you and kings will be born through him, through the nation of Israel, but also the king of kings will come through this line, Jesus Christ. Now, oh, and here's where things get fun. Verse nine. Now verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here we go. God says, that's my covenant. It's all grace by faith. And now here is the sign and the seal of my covenant. I circumcise all in your household. My battery might be dying. I want to circumcise all the males in your household and in your servants. Are we going to change the battery? Good, because I don't really want to talk about what I'm about to talk about anyways. Thank you, sir. All right. So here we are. God meets Abraham again, Abram again, changes his name to Abraham, father of many nations. I'm going to bless you. And then God says, can you imagine this? Go circumcise those. And this is a beautiful, this is, I wish I could get into the cup. It's not ethnocentric here. It's not just the Israelite, the, the future Hebrews, it's not just Abram's family. It says all your servants, all the people that you'll buy, all the people that will come in, circumcise them too. It's a promise for the nations. It's going to be echoed in the New Testament. 
when the covenant goes to the Gentiles and the gospel goes to the Gentiles. But he says this, this is just, you're going to have a sign and a seal of the covenant. And it's going to be this, circumcision. Can you imagine Abram going back and telling all the dudes in his camp, God has made a covenant with us, whip it out. I got my flint knife, nice and sharp for you. Hundred year old shaky hands, Abram. Yikes. You better have faith in God, right? Now, if you remember the last time God made the covenant with Abraham, the flesh of animals was cut and shed, right? The flesh of animals was cut and shed. This time, human flesh will be cut and human blood will be shed. Man, I try not to get a mental picture of this. It's so hard. And in verse 13, God says this, So shall my covenant be in your flesh, in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. What is going on here? God, couldn't you just come up with like a secret handshake or something? Why are we cutting places that we don't want to talk about? We don't want to, right? What's going on here? Why would God have them get circumcised as the sign and seal of the covenant? There's plenty of reasons, but I'm going to give you two today two big reasons. Number one, God would later tell us in the New Testament that circumcision was meant to show us what the Spirit would do in our hearts by faith. I'm actually going to go there. Actually, let's go there. Colossians 2. I don't remember if I gave you this or not, Adam. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 say this. In him, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And we quoted this today. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Praise God. What happens? Now listen, number one, circumcision, the cutting away of human flesh was meant to signify and, and seal what Christ will do by faith in the gospel. God cuts away the old man. He cuts away our sinful, dead flesh, and he gives us new lives by the Spirit. And you'll see this as this plays out. Just because you were circumcised does not mean you're inside the covenant. Just because you're circumcised does not mean you're God's people, does not mean you're saved, does not mean you walk with him. Everybody gets circumcised because everybody in the household of Abram will share some of the benefits of the covenant. They're going to have a godly father who will teach them. They're going to have a patriarch who will tell them about the ways of God. They're going to see God show up and do miracles. But each and every single person must respond on their own in faith. Then and only then will their hearts be circumcised by faith. The second reason 
is that God cares a great deal about who you have sex with. When he calls you to follow him, he wants all of you to follow him, including your genitals. God was marking their sexual organs so that every time they went to use them, they would be reminded that they had made a covenant with the almighty, eternal, covenant-keeping God. Written in their flesh, an eternal covenant. God was going to use procreation. God was going to use uh, multiplication. God was going to use sex to bring about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, in the earth. The gospel would flow through the loins of men. And God wanted every time they used it to be thinking about the covenant-keeping God. Men, this is a good question for you. Do you love God more than your junk? And I'm serious. Your penis is meant to be sanctified to the Lord. It's meant to be used sexually with your covenant spouse. And that is it. If you call yourself a Christian and you are sleeping with your girlfriend, you are communicating to her and to yourself a false gospel. You're doing something to your soul. You're deadening your affections for Christ. You are communicating a false gospel, a false savior to her and to yourself. Listen, I don't have a time. This could bring about a lot of questions and I'm fine with that. I'm in the process of writing a Michigan community curriculum on this kind of topic. Listen, we are built by God to communicate his perfect gospel, even in our sexualities. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that when a husband and a wife come together in sex and they are one, it points to the mystery of the gospel. That a man penetrates and gives to his spouse and she receives just like God is the one who moves towards us and penetrates our hearts by faith and we receive. He's, we're called the bride of Christ. He is our bridegroom. Over and over, Scripture uses the imagery of marriage. Some of you might be getting really weird because I use the word penis in church. I know. I don't like it either. All right. But read the Song of Solomon, please. Read it. Because that is what the relationship with Christ is meant to look like. Is it a relationship between lovers, husband and wife? Yes. Does it point to Christ in the church? Absolutely. Listen. How Justin, well, if I'm having sex with somebody I love, isn't that what God does to us? No, 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 no. God only penetrates the heart with faith of his elect. God only penetrates the heart of those who have been set aside for Christ. God only penetrates the heart who he's covenanted with, who he's in a committed relationship with. 
That's the only person that Christ goes into. Not everyone. Only his elect. Jesus said very only those the Father has given me. We're going to see it right here play out with Abram. I'm just going to tell you, Ishmael doesn't get it. Isaac does. God only penetrates his bride. He doesn't give the gift of himself to everyone. And we're going to see that later in this chapter. Now listen, the gospel call goes out to everyone. But the gift of faith does not. Election, look it up, study it. Sorry. 1715, let's go on. Now, you know what, men? Hmm. I'm not calling you to more self-control. I'm not calling you to do some of the crazy things that people try to do to, to, to kill their flesh, self-mutilation. And I'm, not, I'm calling you to your first love. You're married to Christ. Pornography is communicating a false sense of self, a false identity. It's communicating a false gospel to you. Sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend or whoever... It's communicating a false gospel. And it makes you feel less human. It bends your heart. It hardens your heart. It puts calluses around areas that you're going to have to deal with somewhere down the line. I'm calling you to your first love. You're married to Christ. Does the way you're living out your sexuality right now, does the way you're living out who you are as a person adorn the gospel? Does it point to the gospel? Does it remind people of the gospel, including your significant other? I'll go on. Chapter 7, verse 15. And then God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah will be her true name. Now this is absolutely beautiful. God changes Abram to Abraham, kind of daddy to big daddy, but he goes from Sarai to Sarah, which really is no different. It's just kind of a newer version of the word princess. This is beautiful to me. We know Sarah didn't feel like a princess. We know she felt worthless. We know she felt abandoned by God. We know she felt overlooked. We know she thought she's reminded of her sin daily. But in the covenant, God says, no, babe, you're still my princess. In my covenant, it's not based on your works. You're still my princess. And God says, finally, no, 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 no. Through you, you're going to have a baby. Right? And then Abram, what's he do? Man of faith. Uh, this is funny because Abram, God shows up, speaks, boom. Abram falls on his face. Somewhere in this conversation, Abraham must have got comfortable. He stood back up, right? And now it says, Sarah's going to have a baby. Boom, he's back down. 
For the first time, God clarifies that he will truly use Sarai to give birth to God's promised people. And Sarai gets her name changed here, symbolizing she's God's princess. It's a big deal. Abram laughs. (laughs) He laughs. And then he responds with consternation. Look what he says here. Abram fell on his face and laughed and he said, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Sarah, who's 90 years old, shall she bear a child? And Abram said to God, look at this, look at this. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Do you hear Abram? God says, I'm going to give birth to the covenant promise through your son, this new son I'm going to give to Sarah. And Abram's like, oh no, that's going to bring drama. I've been doing this for 13 years. We've kind of got our rhythms figured out. Yes, Sarah's really upset about it, but we've kind of got this thing figured out. You're going to make her pregnant too? Oh, now both wives are going to have babies. This is going to go bad for me, right? Absolutely it will. Abram is really saying, oh no, God, please don't do this. Use Ishmael. Give me the covenant. Give me all the promises, salvation to come through my loins, king to come through my loins. You're going to be the God of my kids. Great. Do all those things. Use Ishmael. Oh man, how many times have we done this? We make a big, huge blunder in our sin. We do something completely foolish and we're like, God, rescue. God, say, God, please use it. God, please use it. All things work for the glory of God, right? All things work, right? All things work together for the good of those, right? And this to me, is one of the saddest verses in Scripture. Look what God says. Abram says, Oh, that Ishmael, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him. I'll do things my way. I'll produce a seed. I'll produce an heir. I'll produce offspring the way I planned on it. I'm sorry, but no. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and I will make make him fruitful and I'll multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. And God does this with the Arabs, right? God does this. Verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God will not save Ishmael. Mm. His covenant of grace will go to Isaac. The child of the promise and not the child of human accomplishment. In the Garden of Eden, God promised, if you remember, two streams of humankind, two streams of mankind, those who are elect to God who would respond to him by faith and those who are not elect who would walk in their own strength. We saw it with Cain and Abel. We've seen it all through the story of Genesis so far. And here again, we see it with Isaac and Ishmael. As a father, I I honestly have a really tough time with this section of Scripture. God says Isaac gets the covenant and Ishmael does not. 
I don't have time to go into all the details of that, but I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 9 this week and let that cook your noodle. Verses 15 and 16 of Romans, excuse me, Romans chapter 9 says this, God speaking, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, not on human will, not on human will and exertion, but on God who has mercy. Only God's hands are sturdy enough to carry the weight of our salvation. And in verse 22, when he, God, when God had finished talking with him, God went up from Abram. God closes the conversation. Ishmael isn't my guy, but Sarah will give birth next year at this time. And that son, Isaac, whose son, whose name, again, a play on words, his name means laughter. You're going to call that kid laughter. Like, like you laughed, huh? I'm going to have the last laugh. Your kid's name is going to be laughter. Isaac will be your promised child through whom I will bless the world. And there can be no arguing with the almighty. God has spoken. Paul goes on to say in Galatians 4, 23, but the son of the slave, the son of Hagar, was born of the flesh while the son of the free woman, the son of Sarai, was born through the promise. I am sure that Abram, while lying on his face before God, is feeling the weight of his sin with Hagar. What have I done? In a sense, his penis got him into this mess. This mess is now his the instruments that brought the mess, the instrument that brought Ishmael in, and the curse, and this whole human accomplishment. The instrument needs to be sanctified. The instrument he needs to be cut. Dads, our faith matters. Active faith. Our active faith matters. But there is a covenant blessing that extends to children, but it only passes through active faith. It only passes through vital, life-giving, Christ-adorning, God-given, grace-filled faith. Our faithful walk with Jesus matters. The way we use our sexuality matters. You are communicating to your kids. The way you use your sexuality, that matters. The way you use your sexuality right now, you're communicating to your spouse, to your girlfriend, to yourself, to your friends, to your missional community. You're communicating a gospel to them. Is it a true one or is it a false one? And all of that, has an eternal significance. God speaks this tough word to Abram, who is now Abraham. And Abraham responds in faith. He gets up off his face, gets his buck knife out, and obeys God. 
That is what I pray for this church. Oh, God, that is what I pray for this church. Fill it with men who will walk with you and respond to you by faith. No matter what you call us to do, no matter how difficult, we respond with confident, humble, obedient faith. We are men who will take a lead. We are men who will swim against the stream of society. We are men who will lay down our lives and our sexual desires for our wives and communicate to them, I will love you like Christ has loved us. He pursued me. He gave himself to me. I didn't earn that in any way. I received it and that's it. That we would be men who would do that. That we would show this culture once again what it looks like to be men of God. Men who can carry, they have big shoulders and they can carry responsibility. And they can shovel the driveway when they need to shovel the driveway. They can carry the groceries in when they need to carry the groceries in. They can work hard when they need to work hard. They can study hard when they need to study hard. They can love well all the time. They can lead their family into the gospel. They can preach the gospel to their wives and to their kids and to their neighbors. Oh, for men like that, this is what the city needs needs. Not men who right now are looking, playoffs, playoffs. Oh, God, make us into men like that. But thankfully, thankfully, men, Obeying God and walking with him by faith does not require you to be physically circumcised anymore. I do carry a pocket knife, but. Paul says those who want to practice circumcision now might as well go all the way. (laughs) Just keep cutting. I've thought about that too, actually. Listen. We know, we read it in Colossians, God has replaced this covenant sign and seal with baptism. We no longer are circumcised. Jewish, they still, this is crazy. Jewish people still circumcised on the eighth day and Arabs still circumcised on the 13th year. Because Ishmael was circumcised when he was 13 and Isaac gets it when he's eight days old. Thankfully, we don't have to do that. But please hear this baptized or not. Not only those are only baptized or not, only those whose hearts have been circumcised by faith can walk with God. Only those whose flesh has been cut away by the spirit of God can walk with him. Isaac and Ishmael both got circumcised in their flesh that day, but only one had a circumcised heart. Only one received the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't know how to determine if you've received that faith. And, you know, Jonathan Edwards wrote a fantastic book about it. And there's all these ways to determine. And this is just my simple description today. For those who've had their heart circumcised by faith, I would say this. Do you see God as useful or beautiful? Those who have had their heart circumcised by faith see him as beautiful, the chief end of man. I don't need house, car, money, comfort, vacations, retirement, security. 
I don't need any of those things as much as I want him. Everybody sees him as, not everybody. Many people see him as useful. I'll use God to get a spouse. I'll use God to get friends. I'll use God to get forgiveness. I'll use God to feel good about myself. I'll use God to get rich. Church is a great place to have business contacts. I'll use God. Many people see him useful. The heart that's been changed by the gospel sees him as beautiful. Now listen. I, would tr- I think I would preach an impossible sermon, as a friend says, a synagogue sermon, if I would send you out like that. Go be, suck it up, men. Suck it up. Be like Abram, men of faith. This whole text is pointing. Like you would, you'd have to be blind not to see it, right? This whole text is pointing to the blameless one, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only person to ever truly live a blameless life. He's the only one who walked step by step with God, never turning away from the covenant. He's the only one who never has to be reminded of the covenant. He always walked in perfect harmony with God. He's the only one who has never broken his covenant promise. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Yes, but Jesus, he never broke his covenant with God. Instead, he was broken by the covenant. So that we could be brought in, those who have broken the covenant every day of our life, that we choose different lovers, we pursue other things for our end and not God himself. We walk away from the covenant. We break the covenant. Christ was broken by the covenant because we're covenant breakers to bring us into the covenant. The blood of the circumcised was pointing to the perfect and sinless blood of Christ that would be shed once and for all to wash God's people clean from their sin, to bring us covenant breakers inside the covenant by sheer grace. Oh, what a God. And listen, this has already happened. It's an object reality. It's happened in time and space. Christ has paid for our sin. Christ has been broken because of our covenant breaking. Christ has fulfilled all the covenant's laws and demands so that we could have the blessings of the covenant so that God could be our God and we could be his people. It's happened So we come full circle today and I ask you, what is your job? Your job today is to respond in faith and repentance. Believe this work that Christ has done. Believe that it was done for you and it's washed your past, present and future sins away once and for all. The shame, the guilt, the condemnation, let it wash away. Your sins, though they were red as scarlet, now they're white as snow. And walk in covenant faith 
with our eternally gracious God. Only by seeing Jesus. Only the one who should condemn us. The one who should look at us and go, I did it. Why can't you? The one, the perfect one who fulfilled the covenant, who should condemn us, instead takes our place and his flesh is cut and his blood is shed and he gives his very life to bring us inside of the covenant community to make us into family, to send us out as missionaries to tell the world about this covenant-keeping God. The one who should condemn us is the one who lays on the altar and dies for us. What love is this? Where else can you find this? If your heart doesn't explode, if your affections don't move, there's something wrong. Repent, repent, repent and place your faith in Christ. Ask him for the affections. Ask him for the desire. Man, I believe he'll give it to you. And this is why every single week we partake in the the covenant ceremony, the family ceremony of the Lord's table. His body was broken. His blood was shed. This is real. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? I ask you to search your heart this morning. I ask you to confess your sins and place your faith in the risen Jesus Christ once again. If you have been struggling sexually, I ask that you would follow that up by confessing your sins to a brother or sister, maybe a missional community leader, maybe a pastor, that you'd confess that sin, that you would seek repentance, you would seek change to walk in the newness of life that Christ has purchased for you. The culture lies and says every young man does it. The culture lies and says every young woman must give it up to be loved. The culture lies. Christ is better. Christ is sweeter. Christ is more beautiful. I pray that reality would your soul today. Father, as we come before you, everyone in this room marred by sin, everyone in this room unworthy to be called your children, unworthy of the covenant, we fail to be blameless. We fail to walk blameless before you. So if we, we, if we come before you on our own strength today, we're worthy of condemnation. We're worthy of damnation. We are worthy of hell. But again, today we're reminded that there's a way out, that you've made a way through the sinless, spotless Jesus Christ, your perfect son, whom you gave up to be our propitiation and our expiation take our wrath and remove our guilt that we can place our faith in this God, man, Jesus Christ. And you can count us blameless in him. That you can give us new desires, and a new heart. That you can renew us and call us back into true humanity, living in community and on mission. I pray that this supper would communicate that once again to us. That we would receive your body, we would receive your blood, 
we would receive the cup of the new covenant, that we are made righteous through our faith. And our faith, because you are the author of it, you'll produce desire and obedience in our heart. I ask that you would do this for your glory and for the joy of your people today. In Jesus' name.